Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Latin, a production of the Fleming Foundation. This is episode zero, and we have with us our namesake. Obviously, Dr. Fleming will be helping us through this first episode. How are you doing, Dr. Fleming? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Stephen. Well, I suppose we, we, should, we should start right away by letting some of our listeners know about your, your qualifications. Not everybody knows the famous Dr. Thomas Fleming. And in fact, if they, if they mm. Google you, they may get you mixed up with some English author. So um, clarify for our listeners um, where your authority or background to teach Latin comes from. Well, I have a, an undergraduate degree in classics from uh, predominantly Greek, Latin, and French from the College of Charleston. I have a Ph.D. in Greek and Latin from the University of North Carolina. I've taught at just about all levels, from graduate students, uh, college students, high school and middle school students, and uh, homeschooled my own children and taught them and other people's children uh, Latin uh, through both at home and through homeschooling consortium programs and things like that. So I spent uh, I spent uh, a good deal of my life talking about Latin, teaching Latin, studying Latin, and, uh, and there's not a day goes by that I don't read a good deal of Latin. So I've uh, I've tried to help people through the years uh, study study it. And even now I have two or three students around the country that I answer their questions and help them out with. Now, well, accepting your own children because I'm sure they were your favorite students. What was your favorite group uh, to teach among those? You mentioned graduate students and, and young young children. Who do you who who do you really enjoy teaching the language to? Well, I, actually, I like it at sort of both ends. I had some wonderful country kids. They were very simple people. You know, none of their families had gone to college. I was a school headmaster uh, in the in the, the rural South Carolina for a while. And I was simultaneously teaching college kids and teaching my own, these seventh and eighth graders, and out of the same books. And my seventh and eighth grade students always outperformed the college students. Because kids, when they're 11, 12, 13, are frankly too naive to realize that they have a right not to learn anything. You know, they get older, they get sullen, and you can't make me do all this. <laughs> but when they're young, they don't know that. And so I would, ha- I would give them incredible assignments. And, uh, and by making it sort of competitive, you know, te- teaching Latin sort of like football, you know, people would get rewards, and I'd have sort of team sports and things. They really, they, they, they really perform brilliantly, and many of them, in late, in a few years later, were getting very good college scholarships. So that was really pretty exciting. So you've enjoyed teaching the, the young ones, but you said both ends. So you you enjoy teaching. Yeah, the I like older teaching. I like well. te- yeah, I like teaching graduate students. I like teaching people who are really serious about uh, studying the the language and the literature. I once had a, a student, uh, she was a graduate student at the University of uh, Colorado in Boulder, and I was teaching, a, teaching an accelerated Latin course in the summer, and it was amazing. This girl, she, 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 I made them memorize everything in the book, and she still got a 98 on the semester exam. And I thought, this is technically impossible. And uh, she was a very charming, normal person. And I said, are you doing anything this summer but studying Latin? And she said, frankly, no. <laughs> she got up with Latin and went to bed with Latin. But, well, uh, so, 
Some might say, Dr. Fleming, that's that's all well for a, a classics major and, and someone who has a graduate degree in classics and, and maybe those traditional Catholic types who, who go to the Latin mass. But what what about what about the rest of us schmucks? You know? Uh, why why should you study Latin? Well, there's there are, there are so many reasons we could take the next six weeks just outlining them, but for one thing, uh, Latin is the language that connects us with our past, with the great traditions of our civilization. You know, it's the language of the, the language of the Roman Empire, the language of the Roman Church. All, all, all learned people, all educated people in Europe and the United States, down to about World War One, had studied enough Latin to to to, to read the language. And so when we don't study Latin, we cut ourselves off, not just from ancient writers or not just from the Latin mass. We cut ourselves off from Shakespeare and Milton. We cut ourselves off from Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, all of the great American heroes, the architects of the, um, of the American uh, way of life. All of these people were classically trained. And, you know, there's a, there's a saying which I like to quote from Cicero, which is not to know what your ancestors have done, not to know what people did before you were born, is to remain forever a child. And I think that one of the reasons our culture is so infantile, and I'm using the word literally, we have a culture of babies, you know, spoiled little children. If you look at television or movies or look at the way people behave at restaurants, just ordinary, everyday life has become the, a culture of infancy. And one of the reasons for that, there are several, but one of the reasons is we cut ourselves off from thousands of years of the past. Almost all of the important people in our civilization are dead now, 99.9% of it. And by not studying Latin and Greek and history, there are all these subjects are important. Latin is probably the most important. By not studying, we're, we're, we're cut off. We're, like, we're, we're living on a planet somewhere in another galaxy, where, whereas real civilization is, uh, is to us something very alien. Well, some might say we have translations available now that weren't available back then, and, and you, if, you, if you, we can listen to what Dr. Fleming's saying and, and just go get these works in translation. I can, I can get Cicero in English, and I can still get lots of great lessons from him. By, by reading the translation. That is, there is some, especially in our culture, there's some merit in, in reading these translations because this way you can, if you're starting Latin in your 30s or something, or 50s, or I, I, I've, I've talked to people who started in their 60s and 70s, if you're starting late, you can't read, you're not going to have a chance to read everything in Latin. But the language itself, is, is the most fundamental thing in studying the classical tradition. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, for one thing, uh, 60% or more, up to 70% of words in English come from Latin. And if you don't know Latin, you probably don't really know English. And this is why if, when you read newspapers or listen to TV commentators, and they're constantly mutilating the language or saying things that don't mean anything, it's partly because they don't understand the meaning of words. And not only is it 60 to 70% of our vocabulary, but it's the hard words. If you t you have, we have all these simple words like uh, 
like tree, for example, in English. Well, that's a good old Germanic word. But what happens when you take up a word like arboreal or arboriculture uh, or arbor? All these words come from the Latin word. And so what we have is like two vocabularies, one sort of simple Anglo-Saxon vocabulary, and then we have this Latinate vocabulary, which is used for technology, for engineering, for science, for medicine. And so all of the higher learning and all of the, the highly developed vocabulary in English comes from Latin. So that's a very fundamental reason. The other thing is that English is a, is a very sloppy language. And it was sort of disciplined back in the 15th, 16th centuries by people who tried to whip it into shape by imposing a strict grammar out of Latin. And now that we've been cut off from uh, Latin, as we have been since World War I, increasingly English is becoming flabbier, weaker, less precise, less clear, less accurate. And, and this is very clear from, from just reading presidential speeches, for example. If you read the speeches and letters of, a, of John Adams or Thomas Jefferson, they're brilliant. And they're very, written in very powerful English because they were, they were Latinists. But then you read things from, say, our most recent presidents, the two Bushes, uh, President Obama, Bill Clinton, and they're subliterate. They're, they're, they often the sentences don't really mean anything. So the deterioration of our language because of the uh, giving up Latin has been a, a, a very bad thing. But finally, there are, there are even profounder reasons. You know, the, the language you speak helps to form your brain. For example, uh, people who grow up speaking Japanese lateralize brain functions differently. And this is not a racial thing. It's if you, if, if you took a, a, a normal American and, and brought him up in Japan speaking Japanese, or he, he would have a different kind of functioning brain. Similarly, Japanese-Americans born here, growing up speaking English, their brains function just like everybody else. So we know there's this profound effect that language learning, learning uh, has on brain development. Latin and Greek and certain other languages are like calisthenics for the brain. They actually make your mind stronger, more disciplined, more clear. And so that when people take uh, uh, tests to get into uh, officer training or colleges or graduate schools or law schools, those who have been studying Latin do much better on the test, not just on the English section, but even on the math sections. So it, it really, there's no more valuable thing you could undertake to help yourself than to study Latin. Well, I think your point is well taken about words like arboreal, Dr. Fleming, the harder words, but uh, one of the things that may encourage people, if you're listening to this, this broadcast, you're listening to it in English, and there are even easy words that once you understand Latin, all of these other lights turn on for you. As, as you were citing that, I thought of, for example, inquisition or to incite, that both of those words yeah. have very easy Latin connections, and those are words that we use all the time. And all those connect that connecting tissue comes together when you study it. You've been citing World War One as a stopping point. Can you tell us why? Yes, it was. There were, um, you know, the 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 sort of leftists who have been taking over our culture since the French Revolution 
they mostly wanted to get rid of Latin. And there was an attempt in the United States to do it before the Civil War in the 1850s, and the attempt flopped. But uh, by the early 20th century, this movement had gathered steam, and it, it was... Uh, the first university to experiment in dropping classical requirements was Harvard. There, and there was a time, you know, to go to a state university in the United States, you had to be proficient in Latin before you could even get in. And Harvard dropped all this, and eventually President Eliot at Harvard, who was himself a chemist, Eliot uh, dropped all requirements but one year of French. Now, the result of this was an immediate plummet in academic standards in the 1920s and 30s. It took a while for it to work its way out to, to far-flung places like Kansas City or Colorado. But eventually, the, 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 the prep schools and the high schools quit teaching Latin because it wasn't required to get into, uh, into college. So the abandonment of Latin, first at Harvard, then at the rest of the Ivy League, and then, then traveling throughout the country, l led to a, an, a very rapid collapse. One of the things that happened is that uh, science majors could no longer talk to humanities majors because they had nothing in common. It used to be if you were a chemist or a physicist or a mathematician, you knew Latin. And you had a stock of, of you had a vocabulary, you had a common core of, of, of historical knowledge, you knew about the Punic Wars, you knew who the heroes were, who the bad guys were. So at, at educated people, whether they were clergymen or newspaper editors or lawyers, they had something they could talk about. After the 1920s, they were all locked in their, in their little academic ghettos. And so that's when you started having these uh, programs develop, common core curriculums, humanities courses, great books courses at the University of Chicago, University of Wisconsin. There were a variety of them, but they don't work. And the same thing, by the way, is true about the great books uh, schools, both Catholic and non-Catholic, that uh, exist today. If they don't teach a lot of Latin, they're basically failing their students. I'm not going to name any names, but it's, it's pretty obvious what some of them are. And so this lack of, of, uh, of Latin, this gaping hole in the academic curriculum, led to a kind of intellectual chaos where the scientists couldn't talk to the, to the uh, literature professors. And in fact, they, we, we've lost our common identity. Well, are you saying that Latin is only for the disciplines then, Dr. Fumi? No, I'm saying that person who wants to get any kind of uh, education whatsoever other than technical training, because it's one thing to have job training for the 40 hours a week you work. It's another thing to have an educational training that makes you a better human being, a human being who can think and reason and, ex and, uh, and explain himself. For most of our life, we're not at work. And the education used to prepare you not just for the not just for the job, but for your entire life. For those people, people who once upon a time would aim at getting a high school diploma, because the standards used to be higher. Let's say people who expect to go to college. Latin really uh, is a, a very valuable, and that and it doesn't have to be. You don't have to be a genius to study Latin. There are some subjects that are very valuable, like higher mathematics. You have to have a you have to have a high IQ, or you just can't cut it. 
Latin can actually be taught to people who are quite dull-witted and, and come from uneducated backgrounds. And there's a lot of test evidence to show that for children from underprivileged families and children from, uh, from recent immigrant families, by studying Latin, they, they have a key into learning English more rapidly and effectively. So essentially, Latin should be the basis of any decent school curriculum. The trouble is, as we know, it's not. You know, one of your colleagues once read a, a book that I, I read some years ago called The, the Devil Knows Latin. And uh, yes. it's, a provocative enough, it's a provocative enough title. Um, obviously, we can't get into the whole of the book here, and, and especially just in an introductory show. But is there a different take? on it that the, the title is implying? <laughs> yes, uh, that's, that's my, old, uh, my old friend and uh, godfather to one of my children, E. Christian Kopf. We, uh, we were graduate students together, and in fact, we were getting our PhDs under the same director, uh, a, a Scottish scholar named Douglas Young. Uh, he, he, this comes from the, there's a, there's an, ex, uh, you know, an, an expression. I, I, I don't remember exactly what, what he got it from, but Christoph's argument is that Latin is at the central core of our highest civilization traditions, and you can't really function uh, with, without it. And uh, and it's a, it's a beautifully, uh, beautifully written book. Uh, I, I urge everybody to buy it. I think you can get it from ISI. Indeed, you can. Well, I think you've made the case some pretty well, Dr. Fleming, that Latin is something that's important to be studied, that it's something that's available to almost everyone to study. So it begs the question, someone might be asking, all right, you've, you've made the case, Dr. Fleming, how, how might I go about learning Latin? Now, I'm going to say this outside of our, our radio program, what we're hoping to do in this series of of uh, episodes for this show is to to give you some some basis, but it's going to be cumulative. We're not going to assume on each episode that we're starting from zero. So obviously you can't build a Latin curriculum around a podcast, Dr. Fleming. So what would you tell people, and we're assuming our listeners may be in the working world, maybe they're still in school, they, they may be at any stage in their life, but how would they go about studying Latin? There are, uh, of course, uh, a, a, a wide variety of Latin books available. Some of them are quite good, uh, and it depends on the age group. I usually recommend uh, that people pick a Latin text that's fairly old. For example, there's a, a Father Henley did uh, a text which I think is published by Notre Dame, and that's a very traditional Latin text from the 1950s. Grammar Books from the 50s are generally pretty good. That Henley's book is for high school and college students. There's also the, the uh, Charles Jenny, the, the Jenny and Scudder series, but that gets worse with every new edition. So go back to the 1950s edition. The new ones, I've taught, it, I've taught it like five different editions in, in different places. The new ones have all sorts of very bad Latin in it, and it, get, it gets worse and worse. So get, get, get an old one. If you're talking about uh, somebody who is not going to have any access to a teacher or anything else, a very popular book published by Barnes & Noble is uh, Wheelock's 
Latin grammar because that's designed as a self-study. It has many limitations, and we can talk about them in some future program when we, we, we talk about Latin text series. Um, for children, um, I think the two best options these days uh, are produced in England. One is uh, from Cambridge University has the Cambridge Latin course, which is very good, especially for kids in the second, third, fourth, fifth grade. And then uh, Oxford has a somewhat uh, a somewhat more demanding series, but again, aimed at, at uh, middle school, uh, the Oxford La uh, Latin series. So both of those are very good for younger kids. Uh, one of the ones that has been touted for younger children has been the Lingua Latina series, Dr. Fleming, the one yeah. that's, uh, that's based around conversational. What Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, well... Uh, Feel free I to know, give so, us your unvarnished, un unvarnished <laughs> opinion. I, I think we it's know, based we know you're on good a false theory. Yeah. It's just based on a false theory. Latin is not a living language. The the uh, un, un, unless you're teaching Latin to seminarians in Rome, and really it has the there are advantages to teaching a dead language. The the a lot of the 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 necessary discipline involved it disappears. Uh, I've never met anybody who studied lingua latina who went very far in Latin. I'm sure there are. Uh, I'm sure there are exceptions. I was in a program that was trying to introduce it, and they, they dropped it. Uh, a classic case, I, I talked to a, a Catholic Latin teacher in, uh, in Oklahoma, and he, was do he said, well, you know, Thomas Aquinas didn't study declensions. Well, first of all, that's not true. But secondly, I said, you know, Thomas Aquinas grew up speaking medieval Latin at home, which is only a short jump from... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, medieval Italian. It's a small jump from Latin to medieval Italian, and he was then being educated in Latin from the age of four or five all day long. St. Thomas was speaking Latin. We don't have anything like that in our culture. Our kids, at, at no age, are they going to be in an immersion Latin program. So I think that these uh, the oral the oral approach to studying Latin, it sounds good because it's natural, but it's not, but not when you're only doing it an hour a day for five days a week. It, it, it's, I don't think it works at all. Well, and also you're going to rob these children of the joy of, of learning Amo, Ama, Samad, Amamu, Samati, Samad. Exactly. You know, it's uh, going to be part of your, your Latin memories. Um, well, you know, you, you, you say that as a joke. You know, I'm just going to say, you say that as a joke, but actually, you know, the fact that we learn Latin the way the Romans did is something that connects us to the Romans and, and connects us to people of the Middle Ages, connects us to Shakespeare, connects us to all educated people. It's like people who tell, oh, you don't want, you don't want to just repeat those old Latin prayers of the church. Well, why not? It connects you with St. Augustine. Why not? Uh, why not maintain that living tradition? Indeed, and it, you 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 have a little bit of that common struggle. You know that when you when you were learning a particular phrase, or or as uh, any second or third year Latin student, if you're if you're dealing with the, the Gallic Wars or anything that Caesar's written, you you realize you're reading something that actually happened. This is this Caesar's account, and you're reading it in a language that Caesar dictated it in. And I think that that's that's, right. uh, that's quite that's quite an experience. Um, uh, and I remember thinking that the very first time I, I ran into his work. So, 
I think your point about connection is well taken. Um, I, I think we'll just close this introductory episode, Dr. Fleming, by asking for anyone who's still feeling a little intimidated or a little reluctant, um, can you offer any words of encouragement or any other thoughts? Obviously, we're going to get more into Latin in, in our in our following episodes, but to close our introductory yeah. episode. Well, I, there's a there's an anecdote I remember. There was uh, King William the Fourth of England was a sailor. They called him Sailor William. So he made one of his captains the Regis Professor of Greek at Edinburgh. Now this poor fellow had never studied Greek, and you know he the boys the students were toiling. He was toiling, and finally he looked at the kids sweating it through class one day, and he said, "Courage, boys! I am only four chapters ahead." And I think as long courage and to know that you know that you're, you're sort of charting new territory for yourself and for your children, you just go ahead and do it, and you'll find that it's remarkably fun. And I've always found that if you, if the, if a teacher has a sufficient amount of energy and enthusiasm, children enjoy learning Latin. So it, it's it's completely a myth that it that it that it's not a pleasure. It's a pleasure like football. It doesn't you can't play football if you don't get in shape and learn the game. It's a difficult game to learn. And Latin is not easy, but it's extremely rewarding. Well, I think that's a good note to end our introductory episode with, Dr. Fleming. Thanks so much for your time and we look forward to episode one and beyond where we'll be, as you say, getting right into it. Well, it's a pleasure.